that's good to hear something resound in the sanctuary itself rather than just looking at that wonderful but distant camera way back there. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. And as many of you know, I grew up as a missionary kid like Ethan. And as we grow up as missionary kids, sometimes we get asked about our experiences as such. And I wanted to share with you briefly about one of my experiences, because while I was growing up for part of my life in China, I can proudly say that I am a graduate of the third but final graduating class of the International Academy of Beijing. And I say final because after my class graduated, the school closed, it was shut down. And that was because one of our founders of the school had major problems. Because going into my senior year, there were major financial problems. And it was suspected that one of the founders of our school and the board of directors, a Christian quote-unquote missionary, had been stealing funds from this Christian international school. And once it was investigated further, this Christian, again, quote-unquote missionary, decided to take strong action. He immediately fired all of the foreign teachers that were working at the school. Classes were immediately suspended for the time being. And our headmaster at the elementary school was assaulted and put in the hospital for several days. That was the beginning of my senior year of high school. And if you're a parent today and you have kids in school, you can probably relate to some form of challenges going on as we deal with COVID-19 this year. But that wasn't the whole story. That was the beginning. And at the beginning of this year, we thought that, man, this whole situation was not conducive to increasing the advance of the gospel because the Christian International School that we thought was the light and beacon for hope was going through challenges. And yet, as we went through the year, limping through week after week, not knowing if we would have classes or not, teachers not knowing if they would get paid or not, or whether we would have another intrusion into our school like we did at the beginning, something interesting began to happen. You might have expected that the students at this school, who many of them were Christians, would turn to God and question him, saying, God, what are you doing? What's going on here? But instead, a lot of those missionary kids, like myself, who are known for being rebellious and not the best Christians while they grow up, they decided to turn to God and have time for the one that they never had time for before. And so what actually took place is that many students who never had the time to think about Jesus or to take him seriously were actually drawn closer to God in the midst of those challenges. And the Lord closed this entire year of my senior year of high school by allowing that school to shut down, my class to graduate, but a new school to be founded away from the previous administration. And yet, while these circumstances, again, might not have seemed conducive for the advancement of the gospel, that's exactly what God did through that year. And yet, does that sound like any other set of circumstances? Since March, we've had a little bit of an interruption into our lives, haven't we? We're not able to gather together as we once did, and it's probably easy for us to say, you know what, this is going to hinder God's ability to advance the gospel in circumstances. And my hope for us this morning is that as we take a look at the first chapter of Philippians, we can respond in the same way that the Apostle Paul did, by rejoicing in the advancement of the gospel, which is the title for our sermon this morning, Rejoicing in the Advance of 
the gospel, which comes from the first chapter of the book of Philippians. But before we dive into God's word this morning and look at what he has in store for us, let's go to God in prayer and ask him to bless our time this morning because this is his word, not my word. So let's pray that he works through his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you this day for your word, Lord, as it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, I pray that you would allow your word to work in our hearts, that we might be instructed how we should live, encouraged in the moments where we are maybe discouraged, that we might be convicted of the areas where we are in need of sanctification, and that you would allow us to rejoice in the advancement of your gospel and in your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a copy of Scripture with you this morning, well done if you brought your own Bible, or you can turn on the Bible app and follow us. But we're again in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. For some indeed preach Christ from envy and from rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, though, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two. For my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain on the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Amen. Well, as we take a look at this section of Scripture, I have several points for us as we walk through this title of sermon that we have this morning. And the first point that we have this morning is this. Main point number one on your outlines if you had it this morning. The advance of the gospel sometimes comes through barriers meant to hinder it. The advance of the gospel sometimes comes through barriers that were meant to hinder it. This comes from verses 12 through 14, where Paul is writing, and he says again, you know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And you might say, well, what has happened to Paul? Because you might not remember all the details. Paul is currently under house arrest in Rome. And he is awaiting his trial to be heard. And prior to that, he had been traveling all throughout the Eastern Mediterranean world, preaching and teaching, founding churches. And he had been doing all these incredible ministry works prior to this time. And the Philippian church was 
in a particularly close relationship with Paul. So much so that they heard of the imprisonment and wanted to send somebody to be an encouragement and to bring some means of financial assistance to Paul, a man named Epaphroditus. So they were very close together. And they had assumed, hearing that their founder, their missionary, their pastor, who had gone out from them under house arrest, they had assumed that he is in a afflicted circumstances that are hindering his ability to share God and his truth. And yet what Paul is saying is the very situation that seems to hinder the ability for the gospel to go out is actually allowing it to increase more and more. Because he says that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And while in Rome, this is referring to the Praetorian Guard of Rome, which was a specific guard that protected the emperor. And Paul likely, while under house arrest, would have been chained at the hand to a soldier at most of the time, or all of the time. And because of that, Think about what the Apostle Paul might have done in these circumstances. You and I oftentimes pray for opportunities or for the right conversation to share the gospel. And here is a man, an apostle, zealous for God, wanting to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And he has an endless supply of conversations where he can tell people about his trial, but also of the Lord. And that's why he's able to share the truth of God with the Romans, the truth of the gospel that they might have not have been aware of, the fact that all people everywhere are created in the image of God. But there is a fatal problem because of sin, because of our rebellion against God. And because of that rebellion, the Bible says that we deserve death, both spiritual and physical death, because of our offense against God. But the good news is that God, being rich in mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a sacrifice for sins so that anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ can be forgiven and come into a relationship with Christ, whoever believes in Jesus and confesses him as Lord. Isn't it interesting that God uses the very chains that shackle this apostle to increase the gospel in his current circumstances? And just like my story in the, in, in the introduction about my school in Beijing, the very circumstances that we sometimes think hinder the gospel are the ones that lead to its advancement. Another example of this comes from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, a verse that many of us know well, where it says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Where if you remember Joseph in Genesis, one of the patriarchs of Israel, he was sold into slavery in Egypt. And then yet when there was a famine in the land, he went down, or his brothers went down to Egypt. And God provided for them there through Joseph, who had risen through the ranks to become the second most powerful man in Egypt at the time. And while Paul lived 2,000 years ago, we should still not be surprised when God works through similar circumstances today. At many points throughout church history, the very measures that have meant to hinder the church have been the ones that have led to its increase and advancement. Because when persecuted, we mature. When faced with difficulty, that's when we really start to pray when we need God. When we experience hardship, we start to look to Christ in all circumstances. And when our plans dissolve, we see and surrender to a greater plan that isn't from us and that is better in the long term. As James 4 says, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this and that. 
And yet, when our plans change like they have this year, we shouldn't despair at thinking that God is no longer able to work through the circumstances that we deal with. Though from our limited perspective at times, that might seem like it's the case. Instead, we should remember situations like this for Paul and for my school in Beijing and probably for many other circumstances for you in your life where God is able to work through situations that we would deem unworkable. And we should be encouraged by this because God is not limited by the things that sometimes limit us. And yet Paul continues on in his words to the Philippians by moving from the gospel's advancement through obstacles to verses 15 and 17, through 17, where we find our second main point this morning. Our second main point is this. The advance of the gospel can be accomplished through both sincere and selfish conduits. The advance of the gospel can be accomplished through both sincere and selfish conduits. This is where Paul compares two motivations of two different groups of people, where he says in verse 15, some indeed do preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. But the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here in Rome for the defense of the gospel. And the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Now that word conduit from our point, most of you probably know it as it's a channel for conveying fluids, but according to dictionary.com, it can also be a person or organization that works for the transmission of something. So as ministers of the gospel, we are conduits for bringing God's gospel to people and sharing it with others. And the New Testament mentions many people that are sharing the gospel in addition to the Apostle Paul. It mentions people like Titus and Timothy and Apollos and Peter and Philip and Priscilla and Aquila and many others. And yet, in all these groups of people and probably beyond these specific names, Paul contrasts the motivation of two broad groups. The first that he says they preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. They're jealous of others' ability and they want to try to rival them. They're not in their hearts motivated by a genuine desire trying to further God's kingdom, but they're trying to rival others because they're jealous of them. And yet, one detail that's really important there, a lot of times we say, oh, they must be preaching heresy. And that is probably not the case here in Philippians because Paul, as you know, is a bold man. And when confronted with heresy, how does he respond? He responds quite forcefully and strongly. If you've read the opening of Galatians, you probably are familiar with that. And so it doesn't seem like they are preaching a false gospel, but it seems like their motivation is askew, is twisted, is wrong. And yet, Paul is rejoicing in the fact that the gospel is going forth through these people. How can that be the case? Why is Paul doing that? In answering that question, I want to share with you a verse from Romans that you probably are very familiar with. Romans 1.26 says this. Again, the Apostle Paul writing, but he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What he's saying is that the power of God to save souls lies in the gospel, not in the absolute perfection of each person and their merit. Meaning that, yes, though some people are preaching Christ out of a twisted motivation, God is still able to bring the message of the gospel through an imperfect conduit that has a selfish ambition. 
and this still happens today as well. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicagoland? Okay, a handful of you. If you're not familiar with it, it's in the Chicagoland area, and it was a church movement that basically planted many different churches, had a lot of satellite campuses, hundreds and thousands of people attended their services, and it seemed like everything was going perfectly well. And yet in 2019, their pastor, James McDonald, was fired from Harvest Bible Chapel. And I'll spare you all the details, but I'll say that his motivations were not genuine. He had a love of money and a pride of life and many other things that we'll spare you from. But you might say, well, because of this, what about all those people who were at those churches? Yes, they might not have sat under perfect leadership, but if somebody came to Christ and genuinely tried to seek Jesus at one of those locations, is their spiritual walk discredited because of the leadership? And this truth here from Scripture teaches us that, yes, while the leadership was preaching from impure motives and some of them were not genuinely seeking Christ, though they had a true gospel, Paul is able to rejoice because the gospel is going forth and it's the power of God to save unto salvation. And that is why Paul is able to rejoice. But let me give you one other illustration for this as well. Ministry that you might have heard of is called the Voice of the Martyrs Ministry. And it deals with the persecuted church around the world. And they put out a publication called Tortured for Christ, which follows the life of their founding pastor in Romania. And back during the Iron Curtain under the age of communism in Romania, the communists started printing out pamphlets to try to discourage people from turning to the Bible and seeing the truth of God. They tried to say, look at this verse of Scripture. Isn't it twisted? Isn't it not cogent? Doesn't it make any sense? And they tried to discourage people from reading God's word because of those pamphlets. And yet God worked in an incredible way. Because leaders in the underground church started writing letters to the communist publishers saying, can you send us more of that anti-Bible publication? And the communists, all the more thrilled to say, yes, let's try to get rid of these Christians. They sent out more and more, not knowing that it was, the letters were coming from the underground church. And they would use, yes, those pamphlets to share the gospel because it would have to quote God's word to try to discredit God's word. And so the very thing that the communists thought would lead to people turning away from Christ was the very thing that God used to further advance his gospel. Now, as it comes to this point in this section, we need to keep some truths in mind as well. We shouldn't say that Paul is rejoicing in impure motives because that is not true. He's not saying that it doesn't matter how you live your life. Go on and sin that grace may abound. That is not what he's saying because he's rejoicing in the fact that the gospel is advancing, not in the imperfection of the people. There's a very subtle but very important distinction there. But we mustn't go to the other extreme and say that God must work only through completely perfect people who have everything figured out and are not, no longer on the road to sanctification because they're completely perfect now in their living. And this should be an encouragement to us because in the midst of this, we should trust in the sovereignty of God. It should encourage us because though these people are sometimes preaching Christ not from goodwill like the other group that Paul compares them to, the gospel is still able to go forth. That even though these people are imperfect, God is still able to accomplish his perfect work through all these things. And that this should comfort us in the midst of situations that though, yes, we are imperfect, God is still able to work through us 
yet we should also keep a close watch on our life so that we should not use our grace that we have been given as a license for sin. And that is why Paul is able to say in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, either motivation, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, in Christ being proclaimed, he is able to rejoice. And yet, however, Paul does not just stop there in this letter with both sincere and selfish conduits, but he instead continues in his description of the gospel's advance, bringing us to our third point this morning. Our third point in our outline is this. The advance of the gospel is grounded in prayer and God's answering of it. The advance of the gospel is grounded in prayer and God's answering of it. This comes from verses 18 and 19, where Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, the Philippians' prayers, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Here, Paul is continuing to rejoice in his current circumstances because he is anticipating his release. He is still under house arrest. He's not released yet, but he anticipates his release. Why? Why is he expecting to be released? You might think, you know what, I, I've a, he might be thinking that his case is going to be tossed out and hoping in the judicial system of the Roman authorities at the time. Or he might hope that some kind of insurrection will take him out of his current circumstances. But instead, no, he says that he is confident because of the prayers of the Philippian people and the work of God in his circumstances. The Philippians are not just praying for him every once in a while. They are concerned about him because he is on their hearts and in their mind as he is serving the Lord in Rome, far away from Philippi. But do you notice his tone as he writes to the Philippians? He doesn't sound like he is battered and shattered and broken down. He sounds confident. He sounds optimistic. He is expectant of what God will accomplish through the prayers of the Philippians. And that is because Paul was a man of prayer, and he believed in its power. In God's answering of it. He was a man of prayer, but he also believed in its power. It wasn't just something that was convenient for him. Many times we downplay the wonderful blessings of prayer into something that is good but just used before meal. Or maybe something that we just use to close out youth group when the ministry is finished for the evening. And yet prayer is an essential component of the church. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And all throughout the book of Acts as well, we see that time and again, God works through his people through prayer. Do you remember when the church was founded? When it started? It was started in a prayer meeting. Not only that, but I want to give you several other examples of the book of Acts. Because again, the book of Acts, if you're unfamiliar, it traces the history of the church after Christ has ascended back into heaven. What happens next? And I want to give you several different cross-references. And the first one is Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42. So this is in Jerusalem right after the church has been born. And they start to devote themselves to several key things. And this is what the Word of God says. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Right then, early on, from the very beginning of the church in Jerusalem, they're devoting themselves to prayer. Not only that, but when the gospel had spread further north to Antioch, where Paul and Silas are serving the Lord, this is what it says later on in Acts 13 too. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
And they, after fasting and praying, laid hands on them and sent them off. At the very beginning of the Apostle Paul's ministry, what we're hopefully going to do for the Doyle family as they go overseas to Zimbabwe, pray over them asking that God would work in and through their ministry in the future as well. Not only that, but when the Apostle Paul finally got to Philippi, he finally got to Philippi, Acts 16 records some incredible things because Paul encountered opposition to the gospel and he was thrown in prison. And if you and I were thrown in prison for the faith, how would you respond? But the Apostle Paul and Silas responded with this, Acts 16.25. About midnight, it's pretty late, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Isn't that interesting? In the midst of them being shut down for their work of the gospel, they're praising God and they're praying to God for him to work. And right after that, if you remember the book of Acts, right after that, God sent an earthquake so that all of the prison cells were opened. And all of a sudden, the Philippian jailer rushed in, seeing all the doors open, knowing that his own life was forfeit if a prisoner escaped. And he drew his sword, about to take his own life, where Paul called out, saying, Wait, don't harm yourself, for we are all here. And he ran up before Paul and Silas, fell down and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I wonder what Paul and Silas were praying for before God worked in such ways. And let me give you one final reference as well from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 22, Verse 17, when Paul finally returns to the temple at Jerusalem, it says this, Paul, or uh, Acts 22, verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him being God say to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Notice what was the context for all of those. He was praying in the temple and all the ones previous. Prayer was a crucial piece. The truth that we should know today is that God works through prayer. And many times when I try to encourage my students, if I try to say something like, hey guys, just you know, go do prayer, they're like, okay, cool, yeah. But if I just say that generally, it's really sometimes challenging for us to do that. So I want to encourage us in a few specific areas for how we can pray and what to pray for in addition to what you're already praying because I know that you have been praying for many things here at Calvary. So this is in addition to what you're already praying. I encourage you to pray for a hunger to seek God. Pray for a hunger to seek God. And you might say, you know what? I already knew about that. I know that I should already do that. But the reason I say that is because our default nature as broken human beings is not to seek out after God, but rather to drift slowly further and further from him. And there are days that we might not feel like seeking the Lord, or we might not feel like going to him in prayer. And it's okay to pray saying, Lord, would you give me a heart to seek you, to build my life off of your word, and to have a devoted life in prayer. Pray for a heart to seek God and to pray for him. Even if that's opening a door for us to spend some time with the Lord in prayer throughout our week that we don't currently have. Not only that, but I'd also encourage us to be in prayer for opportunities for God to provide that make it evident that he worked. Praying for opportunities for God to provide that make it evident that God was the one to work. Because it's one thing if I go to the mall 
and I pray, God, would you give me a parking spot? It's another thing for me to be in a stressed out, difficult situation and me to pray, God, would you come through in this situation? Because if you do not, I don't know what I'm going to do. God is able to answer both prayers. But when I share about how God provided in each circumstance, one of them is going to probably cause awe among people. And another one is going to probably get a little affirmation. That doesn't mean we don't pray for small things. But in addition to that, let's be praying for large things that God can accomplish so that at the end of the day we can say, I might not know everything about the scriptures, I might not have everything figured out in life, but I know that when I pray, God answers, and that glorifies God. And the last thing I also want to encourage us to do is to pray for God to change hearts. I'm not saying, Lord, would you change the heart of my spouse to always agree with me? That's not what I'm trying to focus on here. But what I'm instead trying to focus on is for God to transform hearts. Because you and I can share the gospel perfectly with somebody. We can share every Bible verse we know. We can give a rebuttal for every apologetic question they give us. But at the end of the day, the salvation of that soul does not depend on our words, but on God's work to regenerate their heart. And that's something that we should be praying for. And sometimes it takes days and months and years. But I encourage you to keep praying, to be faithful in prayer, to be perseverant in it, and expectant that God will come through. Because I cannot change hearts. Only God can do that, and that's a wonderful thing. But let's be praying for him to do that. Praying for maybe somebody in your family who doesn't know Christ. Maybe a neighbor that you've interacted with a little bit more during COVID when things are shut down. Or maybe a coworker who doesn't know Christ. Pray that God would transform their heart and let them accept the gospel and they can come to know the truth and life of Jesus. And as Paul prayed and expected God to work, he had one ultimate goal in mind above all else in the advancement of the gospel. And that brings us to our fourth point this morning. Our fourth point this morning is this. The advance of the gospel ultimately seeks to glorify and honor God above all else. The advancement of the gospel ultimately seeks to glorify and honor God above all else. This comes from verses 20 and 21 and 26, where Paul says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And also verse 26 where he says, so, in, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul clarifies why he is doing ministry. He clarifies the underlying motivation, the fuel that drives him and the hope that sustains him. He desires Christ to be honored, so much so that his life is meaningless by comparison because God is so good and praising him is so much better than seeking our own gains. He sees himself as a tool in the hand of the master, not the one in charge of everything. You know, last year in 2019, I believe it was, when uh, it wasn't COVID, our, some of the men from this church did an incredible thing. I went down with a group called Volt, which if you are unfamiliar with, they basically can fix anything and have fixed everything in the church that has been improved over the past several years. But they went down the hill to our sister church, Bethany Evangelical Free Church, 
and they redid one of the rooms in there, a multi-purpose room, which they use as an indoor gym for a lot of their youth outreaches, basketball games, and serving food for the community when they come in and they have their evening programs. And they did, brought in new sheetrock, they put in new basketball rims that were secure, they did so much improvement to the entire room, and it looks phenomenal now if you ever get a chance to see it. But you know what we didn't do at the end of that time? We didn't come back at the end and look at their toolbox and say, it did such a wonderful job over there at Bethany. That would not have made sense. If we came and brought praise to the tools that were used in the construction and the work done over there, because that would not have been giving credit where credit was due. To the men who sweated, worked hard in the summertime and did many things that I am not near as handy at so that they could improve that room. Because ultimately, God got the glory, but we thanked God for his work through those men, not the tools they used in his hands. And the same is true for us. Many times, it's easy for us to get caught up in our own abilities and our own ambitions and our own praise and situations, not realizing that we are tools in the hand of the master. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. And yet with him working through us, we can be used to build his kingdom, to be fishers of men, and to glorify God in all circumstances. And the same is true for Paul. He sees himself as a tool in the hand of the master, not the one in charge of it all. For he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if Paul instead wanted to go on a momentary discourse and think about, you know what, what if I wanted to be in charge? What if I wanted to give myself credit? What if I wanted to be the one running the show? If he wanted to think about what that would be like, he didn't have to go and start a new trajectory in life. He would only need to remember. Because do you remember who the Apostle Paul was before he met Christ on the road to Damascus? He was known by another name. He was known by Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a tyrant among the faithful. And he was an oppressor of the faith. And after coming to know Jesus, he's done religion man's way, and he now serves it Christ's way. And at the end of this, he chooses to glorify God above all else, even in writing in verse 26 that if he returns, it would be for the cause of the Philippians glorifying God, not him. Because honoring God is Paul's desire, and glorifying him is his end. And as the gospel advances, it is able to do truly incredible and amazing things. Lives are changed, but the focus of spreading the gospel isn't just about lives. Sins are forgiven, but it isn't just about forgiveness. Evildoers are transformed, but it isn't just about transformation. Hope is restored, but it isn't just about hope. Paul realizes that it is all about God and glorifying and magnifying and exalting him, the one that is above every name. As he writes in Philippians 2, chapter 2, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yet when it comes to talking about glorifying and honoring God, many times our minds immediately switch to this big picture reality that I either have to be an evangelist like Billy Graham or start a mission that nobody has thought of before in order to glorify and magnify God. And yet Colossians 3.17 brings it into a more practical setting. Colossians 3.17 says this, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
So when it comes to our lives in small and big ways, are we trying to glorify God in all that we do? Are we honoring God when we finish a long day of work and we interact with our families and our loved ones? Are we honoring God when it comes to what we say of others behind their back and they're not present? Are we honoring God when it comes to submitting to his word, even the sections that we might not particularly like? Are we honoring God with making the best use of our days because they are evil instead of being in apathy? And are we honoring God when it comes to how we receive praise? For Proverbs 27, 21 says this, a man is tested by his praise. Who's the big shot in our lives? Is it us or is it Christ? And following that focus, Paul leads us into the final point of our passage, which is main point five in our outlines this morning, and the final one that we have. And that's this, the advance of the gospel is a higher priority than our personal preference. The advance of the gospel is a higher priority than our personal preference. You might be saying, Jason, where in the world are you getting this from? Look with me at verse 22, where Paul says this. He considers two things. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two. For my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain on the flesh is more necessary on your account. And what Paul is talking about here is he is saying either I'm going to depart and be with Christ and I'm going to be with him in paradise and that's going to be far better or I'm going to remain in the flesh with all of you here on earth. So either he's going to die and go to heaven or he's going to remain with them on earth. That's the two things he, that he is weighing. And then verse 25, he continues on. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he chooses this decision over here, but his desires are over here. What do you notice about the two? They're going in two different directions. Because many times in Christianity, people try to tell us that we need to follow Jesus based off of Burger King's old motto, have it your way. Have it your way. Whatever you want to do, you do you. Treat yourself. Follow what you want in the situation. But when we read scripture, when we go through different sections and we see the truths of God through different times and different areas and different situations, we see that this is something that God has done again and again. Do you remember Moses? What is he known for? He's known for many things, but if you grow up in Sunday school, you remember that he's the one who delivered God's people out of Egypt, that God used in mighty ways. But how did he respond at the burning bush? Was he saying, like Isaiah, here am I, Lord, send me. I'll volunteer as tribute. He wasn't so keen on the idea. He tried to give excuses saying, well, is this really the best idea? I'm not really the best at speaking. Lord, please send someone else. And yet God graciously still used him. And to great effect as well. Or what about Gideon? When you meet him and the judges, when we went through that uh, several months and years ago, you remember you meet Gideon and he's threshing wheat and he's hiding from the oppressors of the day in the book of Judges. And he doesn't think that he's going to be the deliverer of Israel, and yet God uses him to overcome insurmountable odds and bring deliverance to Israel for a time. Or what about Jonah, everybody's favorite prophet in the Old Testament? Was he somebody who heard guidance from the Lord and was excited to go to preach? He was told to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians at the day, and he said, sounds like a good plan, God, but if you need me, I'm going to go in the opposite direction. He ran away from God. 
And the Lord brought him back east by a great fish, swallowing him and bringing him back. And yet, the end result was that the entire city that was a pagan nation by Israelites repented of their sins. And one last example for you as well from the Old Testament. What about Abraham and his desire for offspring and for blessing? And he had two different sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Which one did he want to inherit the promise? When he cried out, oh, that Ishmael may may live before you. And when God chose Isaac and through him did incredible things leading to Christ ultimately. You see, we cannot follow God just based on how we feel in the moment. Emotions are by no means a bad thing. They're a wonderful gift from God. But if we only base how we follow after God based on how we feel in the moment, it's going to be a very, very rocky road, like a roller coaster, up and down. Because Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? But that's why doing things God's way is so much better, but is usually a little bit difficult and stretches us to trust in God more than we did previously. As we follow God, if we only did it based off of the motto, have it your way, it would be difficult to live according to Luke 9.23, which, which is where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself daily and follow me. And take up his cross and follow me. But when we lay down our desires for his, we find out that his are better. So much of the time we buy the lie that following after God is that unpopular, not fun, not exciting thing that we probably should do, but we don't really want to do. And that's not the case. Because following God and doing things his way and in truth and in righteousness is what he designed us for. And when we are satisfied and seek God and do things his way, we are never disappointed, though we might initially have second thoughts. One of the most encouraging verses for me in my life comes from Psalm 1611. It's not in your outline, so if you want to write it down, I encourage you. Psalm 1611, which says this. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Seeking out after God is not a boring thing that is just on that list of things that we should do but don't want to do. As we seek God, we become more satisfied in him and we realize how truly wonderful our God is. And we allow God's truth to ruminate in our lives. And Paul was rejoicing in doing God's work even though at times he says, I would rather be in heaven right now rather than here on the earth laboring for everybody. But for your sake, I'm going to do this and also for the glory of God. And that's why here at Calvary, one of our hallmarks here at the church is to always seek Jesus first, the greater good second, and our personal preference, not third, fourth, fifth, or sixth, but last. Because when we put ourselves first in situations and say, I want to get things my way, it feels good initially, but in the end, it doesn't end well in any circumstance. As Luke says, in order to find our lives, we must lose it for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. And as we do so, we find out that his ways are better, they are more satisfying, they are more life-giving, and they are what we were meant for. God is satisfying if we rest in him and as we seek him above our personal preferences. And that's because the advance of the gospel is a higher priority than our personal preferences. 
And that should give us a cause to rejoice, as Paul has rejoiced all throughout this passage, rejoicing in the continual advance of the gospel, that though he's in Rome, he's still rejoicing, that though there's many things wrong, he's still rejoicing. He's able to rejoice in the advance of the gospel, though it sometimes comes through barriers meant to hinder it, because God can overcome obstacles that we can't and work through situations that we deem unworkable. Paul also rejoiced in the advancement of the gospel being accomplished through both sincere and selfish conduits because God can use imperfect means to accomplish his perfect will. Paul rejoiced in the advancement of the gospel as it is grounded in prayer and God's answering of it. It's not based on what we pray, it's based on God's answering of it because he knew and believed that God was willing and able to answer prayer. Paul rejoiced in the advancement of the gospel as he ultimately seeks to honor and glorify God above all else because only God deserves the honor and glory from our lives because apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And lastly, Paul rejoiced in the advancement of the gospel as a higher priority than our personal preference because to to find our lives, we must lose them. And as we do so, we find out that we never had to give up anything because he was so satisfying. The pearl of great price that is worth laying down our lives for. And if you're here this morning and you've heard about the gospel, or you're listening online or maybe sometime in the future with some technology that I don't know of, but you've heard about the gospel, you've heard about this Jesus, you've heard about this incredible man, Christ, and you say, you know what, I've heard of him, but I've never put my trust in him. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a punishment for our sins, but through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ, by believing in him, we can receive God's gift of forgiveness so that we can be forgiven and cleansed of all of our sins, both past, both present, and in the future, that we can be forgiven of all things by accepting and believing in Jesus Christ. And if that's you today and you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then I want to give you an opportunity to, to do that. In just a moment, I'm going to pray to close things out. And it's not a magic uh, source of words. It's not something that I say. But rather, if this expresses the genuine attitude of your heart, that you believe that Jesus Christ was, uh, died on the cross, was buried and raised from the dead, and he died on the cross for your sins, and you believe in him and confess him as Lord, you can be saved. And if that's you today, I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Would you bow with me? If that's you, I encourage you to pray with, with me this. Lord Jesus... I need you. I know that I'm a sinner and that I have rebelled against you and done what is evil in your sight. And I know that I deserve death for my actions. But I ask for forgiveness of all of my sins and put my faith in your life, your death, and your resurrection. I open the door of my life and surrender control of it to you. I affirm that you, are, that you, Jesus, are Lord. And I thank you for forgiving me of my sins and giving me eternal life. Help me to live for you from now on. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.